0: From the city of
1: Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a small or two and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks. Thanks for joining another episode of the Superpowers uh, School podcast. Uh, Today, I have quite an interesting guest. When I saw this guest profile, I was just blown away by just such amazing experiences that he's had. He's been the CEO of a zoo. He's busted a large lottery fraud and he's an entrepreneur. Uh, So I'm really excited to be exploring some of those topics today. And he's got the most awesome surname. So without further ado. Uh, I'd like to welcome Terry Rich to the show. Hey, Terry, how are you doing? Oh, Patty, nice to be with you. Oh, Terry, I'm so excited about this episode. would love for you to share uh, your background, where you've come from, your journey, all of those good things.
0: Well, I got to the entrepreneur stage because I grew up on a farm and we didn't really have a lot of money. So I learned the hard way that hard work and uh, creativity together combine for a really fun life. So I grew up on the farm, went to school, went to Iowa State. I was going to be a math major. And then somebody said, hey, you can go over here and talk and make a living. Hey, that sounds good to me. So uh, I got into TV and radio. And out of Iowa State University, uh, this small state in the middle of the United States, I started in cable television. Most of my friends went to broadcast television, and I went to cable television before it was cool. And in those years, I really learned what entrepreneurship was all about. had a great boss who was encouraging. Everything we touched seemed to turn to gold. Got to work with the Ted Turners of the world who started CNN and uh, WTBS and all of these different cable channels that were there. MTV was one that we helped start. And all of these different channels in a very wild entrepreneurial time. At that point, we had something happen. Because my dad always said, you know, work hard for someone when you turn 62 in the United States, you get social security, and then you're going to be happy. And at age 40, a company came in and bought our New York Stock Exchange company called Heritage Communications. And all of a sudden, I got, well, they had been paying me in stock options, which I had no idea what that meant. But I had all of the money I ever wanted. I had fame and fortune because I was doing a lot of on-air talent. And lo and behold, I had to decide happiness doesn't happen at 62, and I got that social security happiness happens on the way to success and the fun that I had. And that's when I really started realizing how fun that cable company was and why I should start starting my own company. So I did television production from there. And then at age 50, midlife crisis, I decided to run a zoo. And When I ran the uh, zoo for four or five years, I was losing $600,000 a year. And creativity and this whole entrepreneurial spirit took a city run zoo and we turned it around raised about 15 million dollars going to be around forever for youngsters and then the same governor who had called me earlier on running the zoo said would you be interested in running the lottery and in those 10 years i gave away over a billion us dollars and it, in the middle of it you can tell i'm an entrepreneur i love being on tv all that but i had to, we had to crack the largest lottery fraud in us history and i was involved in fraud and you know the whole ethics deal of when do you do something brought a whole different perspective. But for me, the bottom line and all that, and all of those is that I learned that you want to do something you enjoy and that's happiness happening on the way to success is a big deal. I also learned because as I do these speeches and talk about either the fraud or creativity, I'll have people come up and say, especially younger people, uh, just getting into business saying, haven't you ever screwed up? Haven't you ever made a mistake? Now oh my God, yes. We all make mistakes. And when I work with CEOs all over the world, everybody has the same kind of theory. They say, oh, my, my son's at Yale and my other is at Oxford and somebody else. But Susie, yeah, oh, you know, 10 quite find their way. Everybody's got a problem in life, right? Yeah. And everybody's stepped. My first big failure started, which really set my whole career in more, motion when I was working for the cable company, I was doing on-air talent, and we did this show called Bingo, drawing numbers and giving away prizes to cable customers. And uh, I noticed I didn't have a five o'clock shadow. So I thought, mm, I'm going to write to this uh, chick and tell him how well I love the Razor. Maybe I could get on national TV. So I sat down, in the old days, we called the thing these things typewriters. They're a little different than what how they work today. And I sent a letter out. Yeah, we used to send real letters, stamp on it sent it off to Schick and said, hey, I love your razor. I don't get a five o'clock shadow and I'd love to do a TV commercial for you. I knew that I'd be called within two weeks to go to New York. So I sent that letter off and just like today, if you probably, if you've ever played Euro Millions or a Powerball or a Big Lotto jackpot, the feeling of what would happen if, if I could get a TV commercial and be on national television, how cool would that feel? Two weeks to the day, I got the letter. Here's what it said. Dear Mr. Rich, expressing your complete satisfaction with your Schick Track 2 Razor, we're glad you enjoy it, but we regret to tell you you wrote the wrong company. Gillette makes that one, and here's our address. So I had failed. But you know what happened? I got my mind motivated to try to be on national television, and since that time, I've been on every major cable network and every major national broadcast network uh, in the U.S. and around the world. So... I lived my dream by failing. And I always say failure is the first step to success. And I really emphasize that because as I had grandkids and they came over, and even my kids, I had my young Brindley's her name. She crawled up to the couch, pulled herself up, and what did she do? She reached out to take her first step. But what happened? Boom! She fell. He failed. But what did she do? She didn't know that she she hadn't had experience before what falling is all about. So she crawled over, took two steps and three steps. And of course, today she's running all over the house. And it kind of taught me that failure is just the first step to success. Many of us have a project or an idea that we think is that million dollar idea. And what do we do? We try it. And if we fail the first time, we say, yep, no good, that's it. So I've worked a lot on trying to get people and doing a lot of motivational on trying to take that first step and developing something else as an entrepreneur. So that's, that's a little bit of my background. And in that I've had a lot of successes, a lot of failures, but a heck of a lot of fun.
1: Oh, wow. I love that Terry. I heard this saying failure, it, it's a disguise for learning, right? So it's actually every failure we, we have, there's always something to learn from that. And I absolutely get what you're saying there. You know, it's great to then take that learning and then maybe do things differently for the next time.
0: Just what you're doing in in the superpower school. I learned from my professor growing up. So I try to learn something new every day. And he had a favorite saying, and it was, it's better to have tried and failed than to succeed at doing nothing. If you sit around and do nothing, you'll not make it very far, but trying and failing is much better than, than, uh, doing nothing when it's all said and done.
1: So Terry, what's been your biggest failure, would you say? Let's dwell on the failures first, then we'll go into the successes. Um, it's something that stuck with me. I ran for student body president at the
0: university and lost. I'd won every major election I'd ever gone. You know, I was president of this and executive director of that, and I lost that. And it taught me a little bit about humility and trying to learn from that failure and taking the next step. Cause I never, ever want to feel that again. And I think that helps with the drive when it's all said and
1: done. There's a failure, obviously, and then being inspired to not repeat that mistake again. But do you feel that there are other factors? Because what I've found sometimes is usually when somebody says to me, we we don't expect you to do X, Y, Z. And then in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong. And then that becomes my motivation to fulfill the challenge or whatever. So would you say there are other factors as well at play here? I think the motivation to prove someone
0: wrong is half the drive for me. Once you've tasted success, you want to taste it again. And, you know, all of a sudden when I turned 40 and got all this success and everything I thought I wanted by the time I'm 62, what the heck do you do next? You know, even today when I'm driving to the market and I look down and it takes me 13 minutes and 28 seconds. Next time I drive, I'm thinking, I wonder how I can make 13 minutes and 27 seconds. And failure or success doesn't come just in money that you can get. It, there's, a, there's an inner reward. I went to a conference, and on the back of the toilet was a box. And in that box, it had a hole in the middle of it. And it said, waste-reducing exfoliator. I'm thinking, sitting on the back of the toilet, what could that be? Then I looked it a little longer, and I thought, those darn accountants. Very creative, because what they did, they had this box with a bar of soap. And when you go to a hotel or motel and you stay maybe one night, two nights, you only use a little bit, just that little bit on the outside, right? They were smart enough to cut out the middle and take that and put it on the sink. And now it only takes one bar of soap rather than two. They've reduced their expenses by 50%. How about that for creativity? And I call it, when I was growing up, people call me ornery because I was just maybe a little ornery. But then as I got into high school, they started using the word Creativity. But I realized you can't make a dime with the best idea in the world until you innovate, until you take the step to actually do something. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book, Dare to Dream, Dare to Do. It's a two step process. The very first thing you want to do if you're going to be successful is take a bushel basket and fill it with ideas. And every idea is a good one. Then you take the second step to daring to act. And in that acting, then you start prioritizing what's the best one, because it may be the dumbest idea when you first heard about it that that you put in there, but when everybody gets together and puts it together, that's what really makes it fun. And there's been some fun, creative ideas. In fact, remember this: the failure I had with the Chick razor, um, mm-hmm. actually blood razor, I always wanted to be on national television. A few years later, my hometown called me. They were a little town of 50, a little burb of 50 people. And they said, we're going to have a centennial. We don't know whether 100 years, but we're going to have a celebration anyway. And they asked me to help with publicity. And I was at the cable company at the time. And I thought, well, okay. So I got together with a guy and we brainstormed new ideas. And the new idea, he said, well, you're our most famous person, Terry, because you've been on TV and radio. And I thought, if I'm your most famous person, we better adopt somebody. And thus, an idea. And we decided to give away a free oil and lube at the local garage. We didn't have much to give away in a little town of 50. We gave away a free cemetery plot, that sort of thing. So I sat down and typed on that same typewriter a press release. And that press release said, Cooper, Iowa wants to have someone, a celebrity to be the 51st citizen. We've never had anybody famous in a hundred years. We want to adopt somebody. I sent it off, but I hit the wrong button and it printed out 44 letters. So I had to go to a library and look up. Oh, the London Times, the New York Times, uh, L.A. Herald, whatever. I finally got 44 out. You know what? I failed 43 of the 44 times. 43 of the letters garnered no response. But one one of those letters made it to United Press International, UPI. Didn't know what they were, but they called and said, hey, we like this story. We want to put it on the national wires. And lo and behold, they did. And lo and behold, I got a call a half hour after it was published from a guy from something called Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Oh. said, hey, Johnny likes the story. We want to do something, but you got to guarantee that we're first because you're going to get calls from all of the real people, the reality shows. So we guarantee we're first. (laughs) Okay. Now, remember, I failed 43 of the 44 times. None of the other letters garnered any calls. All of a sudden, we got to go be on the Tonight Show. And they talked about actually uplinking via satellite from Cooper, Iowa, and doing the entire show from Cooper, Iowa. Well, we went out and we were on, and the centennial after we got on Johnny Carson's show garnered, I think, 12, 15,000 people showed up this little town to celebrate. But the story and the moral of the story in all this is I failed 43 of the 44 times. And that one idea that they gave me about being able to uplink with a satellite from cooper iowa which no one had ever uplinked in iowa with a satellite before gave me the idea to work with hbo who had worked with in the cable business and said could we use that and try to do some free previews where we show you free hbo and then get on afterwards and say hey now's the time to call and get hbo they said no i got all these rejections and finally the chief technician said yeah we can do that and lo and behold the weekend we tried that all from the idea that we failed 43 of the 44 times we sold $15 million of HBO in one weekend. And that's wow. moral of the story. Take ideas that you have to, you may fail, but that's what helps you with the success. And ultimately, I got in front of 20 million people on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, 20 minutes before a guy named Tom Jones, if you remember, really old, also on the show. Wow.
1: Yeah. Tom's still going strong. He's on all these uh, great shows on TV as a judge now, I think, on some of these talent shows. But uh, yeah. Oh, wow. What an amazing story. And so, Terry, if you sort of go back to your days as a CEO of the zoo, I mean that that was quite an interesting move. Where I know you said it was a bit of a midlife crisis, but I think that would be amazing to hear. How did you get into that role? And sure, what did you learn from that experience?
0: Well, I decided I wanted to, you know, I wanted to change because I was traveling all over in this entrepreneurial. I was doing more of these HBO free previews, traveling the world, and I was gone a lot. I had kids. I just wanted. Fifty years old. It's time to take a break. So I got a call from the governor. Said they're going to close it. They're losing six hundred thousand dollars. Would you help us? So I went down. We got a group together. We formed a nonprofit. And lo and behold, they you know they said, "Well, you add a new exhibit. It's, you know that's how you get people through the door. We need two million bucks." We started brainstorming just like we're talking, and so use the same techniques that we used in all the businesses that I had helped in the past. And we thought, well, what could we do? What's what wouldn't cost us anything that might draw a lot of people? And we decided that we had every kid from two to 10, but we needed the people 21 and above, a more young adults. Well, how do we bring them? What do they like? Booze. <laughs> so we started Zoo Brew. We opened the zoo at night, no kids allowed under 21, and we served alcohol, had a band and had all the animals out. And it was a great date night. Last year, they sold over $250,000 just in beer at this zoo brew at the this, at this zoo. And immediately, we cash flowed it, turned it around. Another thing we did is what else is free at a zoo? Well, you feed the animals, but what do the animals do then? They poop. So we decided to, to get an exhibit called Scoop on Poop, and we showed all the different excrements of all the different animals, and the kids giggled the entire time as they were walking through, and then we realized that white-tailed deer are big in this area but they were eating everybody's plants. And so we figured out that tigers are predators, deer are prey. And if deer, for some reason, even though they've never seen a tiger in their life, smell tiger poop, they leave. It's a great deterrent. So we started selling buckets of tiger poop for 20 bucks and raised $20,000 that summer. Immediately cash flowed it, turned it around, and they've got enough money now in an endowment to last a uh, forever during pandemics or anything else. And that's how we really got the zoo going. And again, it's based on creating ideas and taking those, even though you fail, we failed a few times at the zoo and turning it around.
1: Wow. It feels like there's going to be a Netflix series coming up, maybe, uh, Tiger Boo <laughs> rather than tiger zoo, or <laughs> tiger, tiger King. <laughs> yeah. Going into that environment, talking about your previous experiences, I bet you've never run a zoo before. So. Going into an environment where you're perhaps not the expert in that particular domain, obviously you've got reusable skills you're bringing to the table, but how, where do you start? Yeah, you hit the nail
0: on the head. You take the employees that are there that have strengths. Somebody's a really good Tiger person. And you say, what do people like? What are you seeing when people walk in? What excites them? For me, it was just seeing kids smile. I mean, it was so rewarding to give back to the community to turn this thing around, but It was a unionized shop. It was losing lots of money. It was an old facility. And you start by just gaining trust of employees and then getting their ideas. And ultimately, they start feeding ideas back. And the idea that, I guess the best idea they fed back was all said and done. They could see that as we made more money, they wanted money for the animals. They weren't getting any from the city. They were underpaid. So we became a non-union shop. And when we made money, we gave some, we gave part of it to the employees and we gave them more money for their animals, which they really love. And all of a sudden they really started creating ideas. And one of the ideas they came up with to raise money was something called dream night. They said, we want to do a night that the employees put on for the community. And what we did is contact all the doctors and all the hospital and said, we're looking if you have kids who are going to be gone in a year, who have a terminal illness, we want to open the zoo, give them all the free rides and the train and the carousel, keras- all those sort of, all the free food. And they can invite friends and their family to come out and it's all free. Well, I'm telling you, everybody, when we told businesses that story, started donating to the zoo. We made lots of money, but more importantly, no one in, in our town knows about that. Only the people who had kids that went there know about it. It's our give back. So it, it, it's the, creating the in, the innovative environment to try to get the ideas. And then when the employees come up with the ideas, you'll be amazed at how much faster it is to implement because they're hundred percent behind it when you jump in. Okay, one more story. Yeah. You know, I thought about failure. So you have all these ideas. So I get a call from the botanical center, the garden, you know, under a dome with all the plants in it. And they said, we we have the same problem. We're losing money. You got to give us some ideas. So I met with them and did my whole theory of creativity and, and coming up with new ideas. And there were six of us but I didn't realize who the one person was sitting over here. I knew everybody else, but the heck with it. So I just started pounding ideas down, whatever I was thinking, sitting down three days later. I figured out that the person sitting over here was an editorial writer for the local newspaper, the big newspaper in our state. And they don't write the little articles down here. This is a half page on Sunday. It comes out and it says what to do with the botanical center. What a, what an innovative leader thinks. And the top sentence was grow a marijuana display or, uh, How about a Venus flytrap? Big one, big enough to suck down a cow. Oh my God, I couldn't believe all these ideas, but they didn't use any of them. I failed in my effort to give ideas, but they got so excited with the ideas and it was in the paper and nobody got fired that they created their own. And now we have one of the best botanical centers in the Midwest.
1: Oh, wow. It's amazing. Just going back to your story with the kids, such a lovely thing to do for the community, but at the same time, you know, it really shows... The people working in the business are human and, and it shows that humanistic side. Do you think more organizations would be more successful if they showed that type of empathy and and that type of humanistic side? It, there's no doubt. Everybody wants to help out. Everybody wants
0: to support the, support the boss. I, I tell the story that if a king or queen would say, oh poop, everybody heads for the bathroom because you think that's what you, they're telling you to do. and. And in fact, everybody wants to just please others, but as a boss, they don't realize how much we want to please them too. There's nothing more fun and and success than we've got an employee that may have problems at home or is a a non-successful in the work, find them the right fit and they get excited and they succeed. I mean, that those are as rewarding as anything that you do on ideas or or money-wise. And the other is once you start making money, you realize that you become a little less risk takers probably in some ways. I think I'm taking more risk today, but I still always, anytime I have a new project or something new, I'm trying. And I got a big soccer project in the works right now that I think will make some great money. But I always take 10% and that's my play money. It's like kind of like gambling. You don't gamble your whole bank account. You gamble a little bit knowing you could lose it. And I do the same thing with business. Where in the early days, before I had kids, when I was married, I'd probably spend whatever just to, because it's a crazy idea.